too. Okay, so I I, uh, I work at Christ Community um, Health Services in Memphis, Tennessee, with their uh, family medicine residency program. Um, we have about 100 medical students that come through every year and do rotations with us, and so. Um, we usually have about a month to unpack the stuff we're going to talk about in the next 50 minutes, 45 now. Uh, and so, um, but that's, uh, I hear a lot of that, okay? And um, and so we're going to try to um, paint in, in broad brushstrokes and really um, try to understand first what what is God's mission, what is God's will, and how do we, how do we fit into that? And... Um, This isn't in any of the material, but one thing I'd encourage you to do, um, just for your own Bible study sometime, is go and just look up uh, all all the times, especially in the New Testament, that the word calling is used or called. And uh, I think you'll be really surprised, um, because the way that we use that word in the church doesn't match the way that it's used in the New Testament, okay? Because uh, most of the times when we use the word calling, we're talking about exactly what, what he just said, like, what is my occupation? What am I, God, what do you want me to do? And that's not at all how it's used in the New Testament. Um, when God talks about calling, he's talking about calling us out of darkness into light, out of the world and into relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, that He's calling us to Himself to be holy and to participate in a community of love with Jesus at the center. He's called us to be a part of His family. Um, all these First Corinthians chapter one. You can go through and you can look at. Um, there are three or four different things that it talks about um, what our calling. Okay, uh, and so that's that's. Primary, and that's some of what we're going to be talking about today. But it's uh, we need to, to have a balanced approach about this. We need to remember first and foremost that we are called into a relationship with Jesus, and that that's principally what the mission of God is: is is then to turn around and, and to help others find Jesus too. Um, I want to introduce you a little bit to, to my family really quickly. I've got. Two of my, uh, two, three of the five of us are here. My wife and my youngest daughter Ella uh, are sitting over here in the corner. So if I tend to look at this side of the room more than this side, I, I am biased towards towards my left over here. Um, but uh, 13 years ago, um, my wife and I—we didn't have children yet—felt um, a calling. This weird, weird term that we don't really understand. Uh, uh, to move into the inner city of Memphis, and um, that was it. There wasn't an occupation with it, and the, and the only way I know how to describe that was it was a burden that wouldn't go away until I did something about it. Okay, um, some of you may have a burden for the nations, a burden for healthcare, and anything else that you do feels like it's just not quite right. Okay, and and um, I thought that was too. Um, too personal of a way of looking at calling for a long time until I met uh, and, and spoke with a man named John Perkins. Who John is a uh, 80-year-old, 82-year-old now African-American man down in Jackson, Mississippi, who's a part of the civil rights movement, and um, he uh, he's done a lot to uh, uh, to to be a prophetic voice about uh, ministering and developing our inner-city communities and and. Um, and I talked to John one time. I had a chance to have lunch with him and ask him about his calling and, and what did it look like. And and uh, he said that when he was in, um, he was out in California, and uh, God began to speak with him. He had escaped uh, the, all the persecution that was going on in his home state of Mississippi and was living in California. And his life was really coming together. Right? He was uh, beginning to um, be. Uh, really effective at, at ministry in, in the jails. He, he had a, a job, a management job. Um, he had all these opportunities. He, he was able to buy the, the first home in his, that his family uh, had ever owned for generations. Um, all these things were going well. And then he got this calling. Okay, The calling was um, to go back to Mississippi and to take all the things that he had learned about the gospel of Jesus Christ and reinvest them back in, into the community uh, where he grew up. And um, and his wife didn't like that very much because she felt like they had escaped um, 
all of this hardship and all of this persecution and why in the world would God be sending them back? And uh, he talked about how um, he, didn't, he didn't act on that for a while and uh, he began to get really sick. Um, and he couldn't explain the sickness, the illness. He started having a fever. He started uh, just feeling kind of paralyzed and not able to move. And um, he asked his wife to, to pray for him, and she did. And during a time of prayer, God revealed uh, to her that, that she was the cause of John's illness, that she was um, a stumbling block to his calling and um, that she needed to lay down her life and to submit to her husband and to follow him back to Mississippi. And, um, and she felt like God was saying to her, if you don't, your husband's going to die. Now, that's not typical, right? <laughs> that's not how it works for most of us. But I'll, I'll, this is the thing. Her name was Vera May. And what I want you to understand about Vera May is that um, she submitted to the will of God in her life. And because she did, because she died to herself and, to, and submitted to God, um, they, they planted a, a clinic in, in Mississippi that gave birth to a clinic in uh, Chicago, Lawndale Clinic, which gave birth to a clinic down in, Miss, in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, Christ Community Health Services, that's given birth to dozens of clinics all across the country. And there's a proliferation of Christian health centers all across the country that go back to one single act of obedience by a woman named Vera May in California who was uh, afraid and who um, wanted to live in the freedom that she had experienced. But God was calling her to, to die to herself and to put her trust in Him and to make a sacrifice. And because she was obedient to that calling, I'm sitting here now talking to you. And that there has, have been healing and healthcare centers all across the country that are taking care of the poor because Vera May submitted. We don't know what type of fruit God is going to bring forth when we're obedient to, to our calling that He puts before us. We don't know. We may not, we may not get to see it. But we can trust Him and we can trust that He's good even when what He's asking us to do looks completely insane. And so uh, my wife and I, 13 years ago, uh, moved our family into the inner city and um, decided to send our children to the inner city schools. And um, that looks crazy to some people. And unlike Vera May, I can't point to a lot of fruit yet. Uh, but I, I hope that one day... Um, Somebody, maybe those of you who outlive us, will, will, will be able to see that. All right, so big brush strokes. We're going to go through this pretty fast. What is God's mission? God is redeeming and purifying a people or a bride from, for himself from among all nations to worship him, glorify him, reign with him, and enjoy him forever. Okay, that's the big picture. God is redeeming a people for himself, for his own enjoyment from among all nations. So we're going to uh, look at the end first, and then we're going to go back to the beginning and work ourselves to the end again. Okay, so here's a, a picture of the end in Revelation chapter 19. It says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Okay, so God is coming uh, to claim a bride for himself. Um, when I have a chance to um, counsel young couples who are getting married, I look at them, I look at the man, I look at the woman, and I say, Woman, you're a bride, right? And that a part of your role as a bride is to submit to your husband so that your husband will know as a bride, man, you're also a bride, so that you'll know how to submit to Jesus as your husband. Okay? So um, submission is a uh, wonderful thing. It's all throughout God's holy book. Uh, but it is a ugly word in, in American culture. And... Um, 
And so part of what we're going to talk about in terms of calling today is embracing the, our role of submission as, as um, the bride of Christ. That he has come to claim us for himself, to love for all of eternity. So going back to the beginning, where does this get started? Well, it gets started uh, with a man named Abram. And uh, God chooses Abram from among, again, all the people of the earth. And he gives him a very special task and a very special mission. And he says to Abram, he says, Go from your country, uh, from your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. And then if you... Flip over uh, into the New Testament and you read Paul's writing in the book of Galatians in chapter 2 and chapter 3. He makes it very clear to us that this promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the seed of Abraham who has come on God's behalf um, to bless all the nations of the earth. Right? You, you also see kind of a foreshadowing in uh, one of Abraham's great-grandchildren uh, in, the, in the man of Joseph. right? Who Joseph is also, also uh, often seen as kind of a... A picture of Christ in, in the Old Testament, but Joseph comes right. He's sold into slavery. He's brought into uh, Pharaoh's household, um, and Pharaoh, who is the ruler of, of the known world, right, appoints him uh, in charge of all of his household. And through Joseph, all of the nations surrounding Egypt are blessed because God gives Joseph wisdom to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and to prepare for seven years of famine. And through Joseph, uh, God distributes his blessing of provision to the nations. And that's a foreshadowing of how Jesus is going to come and he's going to provide for God's people. He's going to bring the blessing of salvation upon all the nations of the earth. Uh, in Exodus chapter 19 is where um, God uh, says that he's, he's choosing a people for, for himself from among all the peoples of the earth. He's going to elect the people of, of Israel for a, very, um, for a very special task in that it says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, so what does it mean for Israel to be a kingdom of priests? Well, they're supposed to represent God to all the nations of the earth by living a holy life, okay, by living according to God's law. And as they do so, people will see the glory of God through them. They'll see uh, God's wisdom and His majesty through the beauty of His law uh, as they love God and as they love one another. And then you flip a couple chapters over from Exodus chapter 19 and you see what? You see instead of them worshiping God, they're worshiping an idol, right? And so um, there's only one tribe that, uh, of, of the 12 tribes of Israel that doesn't bow down and worship the calf. And that's the tribe of the Levites. And so God says, okay, since Levites, since you're the ones who didn't bow down and worship this calf, now I'm choosing you from all the tribes of Israel to be a holy priesthood to represent, uh, to represent me now to, to the nation of Israel, right? But that wasn't God's original intent was, was for the Levites to be the priesthood. It was for all of Israel to be the priesthood. And then if you flip, uh, flip over into the New Testament again, you see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, in Revelation 1, 6, that, that God again is establishing his people. Everyone who has a relationship with Christ is then called again the priesthood. The priesthood of all believers who is to represent God before all the nations of the earth. So a central part of God's election, it's not like election is not solely for the purpose of our salvation, right? Uh, if you run through Romans uh, chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, like we stop too soon, but, but it talks about how we're predestined, how we're elect, and how we're elect for salvation. We're justified, and those who are justified are sanctified, they're made holy, and those who are sanctified are also glorified. And usually we stop there, but that's not where it ends. He goes on, Paul goes on to talk about in, uh, in Romans chapter 9 of how um, that those who are elect, that, that, we're, that we've been called um, to go forth 
and to preach the gospel to all nations, and that it's through, it's, it, he talks about how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, right? And how are people um, to have faith unless they hear of God's good news? And so those who are elect, those who are chosen, are to be God's missionaries or representatives to the nation, okay? So um, our election is not just for salvation, but it's for missionary service. And that's what the Israelites were chosen from all the people of the earth to be in missionary service to God, to represent His character, His glory, His beauty, His love before all the nations of the earth. Okay, that doesn't happen. That's what this blank page is. All right? This is a lot of talk about the rest of the Old Testament. Okay? So over and over and over again, the people of Israel fail to live according to God's law, right? And they don't, they don't paint a picture of God's glory before the nations. They worship false idols. They engage in crazy sexual practices. They, um, uh, they, they destroy people. They destroy one another. They don't live according to God's uh, law of love. And they bring shame upon their Creator. Okay? We bring shame upon our Creator by our sinfulness. Okay? And so God in the prophets uh, says this. He says, um, guys, you didn't do it. You didn't accomplish my task. So I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. Now, what's going on? Like God... He just had thousands of years of disobedience, right? And now you're just like reiterating this plan again. Like you're saying, I'm going to prove myself uh, and I'm going to display my glory um, as I prove, uh, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. And then the next passage talks about, and this is the great one of the great passages of the Reformation. You look through all the Reformers, they all have... Uh, they all have a sermon on, uh, usually it's Ezekiel 36, verse 26, and it's a passage that a lot of us know that God says, I'm, I'm going to prove myself holy by doing this. I'm going to take your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, and I'm going to pour my spirit into you, and I'm going to make you to obey my commands. That's the promise of, of the regeneration that comes when the Holy Spirit comes into our life. Okay, God doesn't, Say doesn't start with this idea of saying, like, I'm calling you to be holy, but you couldn't do it, so I'm giving up on that. That we are still to be a holy people. We just can't do it in our own strength and in our own ability according to just submitting to God's law. That we have to have the very Spirit of God within us, regenerating us, renewing us. To be holy, again, to display God's beauty and God's glory before all the nations of the earth. So that people might see God's love through us. Another great central passage to um, God's plan and God's purpose for, for a people. He's calling a people to himself from among all nations. and um, He says this, he says uh, in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, he says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus came, God, God prophesied that, that a man would come named Jesus, who would come and save us from our sins, and he would pay the penalty uh, for our transgressions, and that he would restore us to relationship through this man, Jesus. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. Okay. Um, so as Jesus begins, when Jesus does come, and as he begins his earthly ministry, um, he talks about how um, Jesus not only came right for the Israelites, but he came for all the nations. He came um, so that in the middle here, in uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 14, it talks about how the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light is dawned. And when Jesus appeared, when he came to begin to, to preach to the nations um, a message of, of healing and redemption and restoration, uh, a message of repentance, that he came not just for the, the people of Israel, but he came for all the nations of the earth. 
And one of the great prophecies in the New Testament is this, is that Jesus says, um, the, the disciples are asking him a question. They're asking him, Jesus, when are you going to return? When is your kingdom going to be fully established upon the earth? What, what are the signs and wonders that we should be waiting on? And he says in Matthew 24, 14, he says, well, first this must happen. This gospel of the kingdom will be pre- preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of research has been done on this, and um, in the 1970s uh, there was a group of evangelical leaders that met in Lausanne, Switzerland, um, and, and what brought them together was this verse, Matthew 24:14, and um, they were asking themselves, is it possible, like if if Jesus has given us this command, Matthew 28, to go and make disciples of all nations. And we know that he's, his return is not going to happen until this takes place, until, uh, until the church takes the gospel to all the people of the earth. Um, is this a commission? Is this a command that we're just supposed to work on endlessly um, and then someday Jesus is just going to pop back? Or is, it, or is it a real goal that can be accomplished by the church? And if it's a real goal that can be accomplished by the church, can it be measured? Can we tell when we're getting closer to accomplishing that goal? Now, Jesus says, no one knows the the day or the hour of my return except for the Father in heaven. But he also says, Matthew 24, 14, that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is our task for the church, right? It's to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. And then when we accomplish our task, sometime after that, Jesus will return. And so these leaders began to, to catalog, well, what are all the nations of the earth? And, and who knows about Christ and who doesn't? And let's begin to target those who've never heard uh, of Jesus Christ. And so the, the term unreached people groups started to be used. And, and, and language like the 1040 window, all that came out of the laws and covenant. But it was actually this idea of cataloging who has heard the gospel and who hasn't came 200 years earlier through William Carey. William Carey wrote a little track about talking about um, uh, using the means of God for the conversion of the heathen. And he made these lists, again, of all the nations of the earth and, and how many people belonged to each tribe and culture and who had heard the gospel and, and who hadn't. And so this idea has been around for hundreds of years, but the the purpose of it was to help the church to focus its energy on accomplishing the task that God had given it to do. And then this is, we're at the end again, Revelation 9, I mean Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Uh, John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so this is a picture that God gives John uh, into the future of what the end is going to look like. Okay? And so in the end, there are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping God. And so right now, you and I live in this period of time between Matthew chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 7. We've been given a task to take the gospel to all nations. And in the end, all nations will be worshiping God. But our task that he's been given to us, this is the big, the big picture for the church, right? The mission of the church is is to introduce all people of, of, of all nations into a relationship with Jesus Christ so that they might know Him as their Redeemer, so that their sins might be forgiven in His name, so that they might receive the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit might make them holy, so their holiness might be seen among all nations, and that people might glorify God and give honor to Him because they see God's beauty and majesty reflected in His creation as, as we love and serve one another in the name of Jesus Christ. That's our calling as Christians. Now God has given you many gifts and many talents um, to use in service to that mission. So most of us in here, most of you in here, uh, are in the medical field. So the question you need to ask yourself is, how can I use medicine to bring glory to God and to introduce people into relationships with Jesus Christ? And one of the things you have to avoid is getting caught up in... uh, 
in, in an American system of medicine that, that demands production and performance and seeing more and more patients and squeezing out the opportunity to share Christ with your patients. There is a... Um, there is an opportunity here in America unlike what we've seen in a hundred years. For the last hundred years, medicine has been secularized. And, and healthcare, uh, healing, and, and ministering to the body, and ministering to the soul have been separated. Okay, That happened about the time of Freud. And um, since the time of Freud until the, about the last decade, that's the way we've thought about medicine. But in the last 10 years, there's been more uh, research done um, and and more people are asking questions about how can doctors um, and and nurses minister to the whole person. And there is a desire. uh, There's been research done that shows up to about 80% of patients want their doctor to talk to them about their spiritual well-being. Can you believe that? That same group that was surveyed said only 5% of them had ever had a doctor or a nurse ask them a question about the, the condition of their spirit, the condition of their soul. They want it. They want it more from you than they do from me. Okay? If any of us, um, if any of us have ever been in a church service and had a time of taking prayer requests, and uh, what are 50% at least of those prayer requests about? Healing, medical stuff, right. Heal my mom, heal my cousin, heal my grandmother. They'll go on and on and on, right? Naturally, we make this connection between healing and our faith, right? But then when we show up in the doctor's office, all that goes away. And what people are saying is we want to bring it back together. We don't want to just pray. We want our doctors to pray for us. We want our doctors to pray for our healing. And so you have an opportunity to minister to people in a way unlike you ever had. You just have to get over the fear and over the lies that people are saying that you have to separate those things out. All you got to do is ask. Say, hey, do you mind if I pray for you? All right, so here, here are some negative, there are a couple negative responses um, in, in the first part of the Bible towards God's mission. Okay, this is, how, this is what not to do. Okay? And so um, Adam and Eve... Um, Satan lies to them, and they believe the lie. Uh, Satan says, that if you disobey God, you will certainly not die. Um, for God knows that when you eat from this fruit, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Okay, and so what's the sin of Adam and Eve? It's, it's the sin of self-direction. Okay, they want to choose for themselves what is right and what is wrong and then act upon it. God said, um, you may eat from any of the fruit in the garden except for this one tree. How were the, the man and the woman to know right from wrong if it wasn't by deciding for themselves? Well, God intended for them to live in submission to him. And that they were to understand right and wrong out of that grew out of a relationship with God and out of submitting to His commands. And so, what's your attitude on submission? If we're gonna if we're gonna have a positive response to God's calling on our life, we can't make the rules. We can't say, God, I love science, and therefore um, I want to be a doctor and. Uh, and then I'm going to figure out how to serve you as a doctor. And God, what I really would like is to go on a couple mission trips on the year, but I also want to raise a family and I want to provide for them and I want to send my kids to the best possible schools and I want them to have a better life than I did. And, and uh, that's self-direction. What God wants is for us to humble ourselves and submit to Him. Surrender it all. Surrender our plans. Surrender our agenda. This is a funny little cartoon. Can you see the guy? It says, the, the little lamb is talking to this man. It says, for what it's worth, Cain, I liked your sacrifice better. You don't see that? Okay, so this is, this is the second negative response we see in the Bible is Cain and Abel. Okay, so in the story of Cain and Abel, uh, Abel made a sacrifice that was pleasing to God. He offered a lamb. 
Cain offered fruits and vegetables and his sacrifice was not pleasing to God. And uh, in Genesis 4 it says, The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The sin of Cain is is the sin of deciding what to sacrifice. Cain wants to decide what to give to the Lord. This is Cain is a picture of false worship in the Bible, right? Uh, when Kim and I first moved into uh, inter- this inner city community, uh, community in Memphis, we were looking for a church, and so we visited. There are about 19 churches, right? Memphis has got a church on every corner. So we started visiting different churches, and most of the churches were um, commuter churches, right? That they had started out as, as neighborhood churches, um, but they w- really weren't doing any ministry in the neighborhoods anymore. The people had grown up in the neighborhood, they'd moved out, and they commuted back into church, and uh, that church was focused on serving uh, their constituents, but not necessarily the community, and we really wanted to plug into a community church, so we kept looking and looking, and we finally found one that was amazing. They were doing all kinds of outreach. Uh, to their neighbors, and they really love the neighborhood. Um, and uh, so we said, well, this is where we're going to plug in. So we, we went to church there for about three months until s- stuff started looking and sounding weird. You know, as we'd go to church and we started talking to the pastor, and I said, I think I need to go talk to this guy because there's stuff that he's saying in his sermons that just isn't really lining up quite right. And so I started asking these questions about what did he really believe, what were his doctrines, what, you know. And it, it, it came out that um, he didn't believe that Jesus was the Savior for the world. He believed that Jesus was Savior, the Savior for Christians. And so the Christian way to God was through Jesus Christ. But the Hindus had their way to God, and the Buddhists had their way to God, which isn't true because Buddhists don't worship God. But everybody had their own path to God. Right? And that in God's sovereign plan was to appoint a religion to each person and that it's not our job to mess with that, to mess with God's plan. Well, that's not a church. Right? We had uh, plugged into a, a nice community group, but it wasn't a church. Um, they weren't lifting up Christ as Savior. Um, they were deciding what parts of the Bible to live out and what parts not to. And they had emphasized this very, very important attribute of love and loving our neighbors. But they neglected that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who came to die for the sins of the world. They were committing the sin of Cain, deciding what to sacrifice and what not to sacrifice. So in our own lives, like we set limits on God. We, we say what's off limits and what we don't usually say this out loud, but in our hearts and in our mind, we kind of give God room that he can dwell in. But if he's God, if you step outside of those limits, then you're out of bounds. You know, I'll go so far as to move my family into the inner city, but God, don't ask me to go to Somalia. Right? I want to decide what you can have and what you can't have. That's going to keep us from living according to our calling. The third bad example is the, the Tower of Babel. And um, at the end of Genesis chapter 11, it says, Come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Okay, it's really important to remember that... Um, Two times uh, in the first part of Genesis, first to Adam and Eve and then to Noah, God says, I'm scattering you over all the face of the earth. Right? It says, go forth, uh, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And he's scattering them. Right? Adam and Eve were not intended to live in the garden forever. That God was a missionary God from the very beginning and God was sending them out. Right? 
so that his glory may be seen throughout the earth. And again, with Noah, he tells Noah the same thing. I'm scattering you out. That's be obedient, submit to this. And now the, the, the people are saying, let us not be scattered out over... That's exactly, they're like repeating in the negative exactly what God had said. Let's not do that. And instead, let's build a name for ourselves. And so the... the the third negative response is, is that we try to choose our own purpose for our own glory. That again, we try to control the agenda of how we're going to serve God. So I want to look uh, quickly at a positive response to look at the life of the Moravians. Do you guys know anything about the Moravian church? Somebody give me, let's go a quick popcorn, a couple of quick facts about the Moravians. How many, just raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Moravians before. Raise them real high because I want to kind of see. All right, it's okay. All right, so you guys, what are some things that you know about the Moravians? Hundred years of prayer. It's the first thing that we know about the Moravians. That's what always comes up is that they had this 24-7 watchfulness where they would, different people would take an hour to pray and they did, and that lasted for a hundred years. Okay? What's something else that we know about the Moravians? Radical missions. What do you mean by that? Like, what did they do? What were some of the things the Moravians did? Yeah, they laid down their lives. Some of them, even when they heard about um, the slavery on St. Thomas Island, um, some of them sold themselves into slavery so that they could take the gospel among the slaves and among their slave owners. So this radical obedience to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. What are some other things that you know about the Moravians? Is that it? That's good. Okay. Uh, I've got here a, um, I've got a card Okay, uh, one of my cards, um, I'm helping a group called Resurrection Health start a new clinic. So this is one of the cards. And on the very top of it, it says, good for one free sweatshirt. Okay, so if anybody, uh, I'm going to give you a multiple choice to see how, how well you were paying attention earlier. Okay, um, I'm going to give you a multiple choice. But uh, this, take this card, whoever I'm going to give this to, take it to the second floor, right, where Resurrection Health's uh, Booth is, and you can exchange this for a sweatshirt that fits you, okay? So, here's the question. Of all the scripture verses that we've just gone through, okay, one of them was the essential verse that centered the Moravian church in their mission to the nations. Matthew 24.14 is incorrect. Matthew 28.18 is incorrect. Revelation verse on the reward for his sufferings is incorrect. Yeah, back, back. Ezekiel 26.36 It's a beautiful one, isn't it? It's incorrect. Matthew 4.13 is incorrect. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Incorrect. Yeah. 1 Peter 2, 9. Is incorrect. Exodus 19, 5. This is really not working very well. Is that correct? Yeah. Makes Abram a blessing to... Incorrect. Romans 9, incorrect. Yes, all the way back there. Did you raise your hand? Oh, were you going to say Romans 9? Revelation 19, incorrect. Matthew 28, incorrect. Yeah! Isaiah 53. Can you run up here and come get this? Everybody, a round of applause. All right. Can anybody, let's, let's remember, uh, Isaiah 53 is this beautiful passage. I even gave you a little hint. I said we're going to come back to it. When we're, all right? Isaiah 53 is a passage about, about Christ's suffering. That Christ was coming to suffer for us and to die for us. That was the verse that centered the Moravians. And the, the, what they said is that we share the gospel of Jesus Christ 
out of our love and appreciation for what he's done for us. Not out of a sense of duty or obligation to the law, but because we ourselves have met Christ face to face and he has saved us from our sins. And we want that for other people. It's almost exactly what Val talked about during his, his session a little while ago. That the Moravians, one of the things that really characterized the Moravians is that they were not taking this religion to the nations of the earth. They were taking Christ. And they were not just taking you know, Christ as this religious leader, but, but they were taking a personal savior. They were taking the Jesus and introducing people to a relationship with Jesus Christ because they had been saved and they loved God so much for their salvation. That was the, the war drum that they beat over and over that called them to missions was the fact that Christ has sacrificed himself for us. Therefore, we are to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice for him. The Moravian mission to gather into Christ the souls he died to save is the one object for which the church exists. I'm not sure if this is where it is. I'm going to skip ahead to something real quick. No, we're going to go back. We're going to go through these real quick. Um, I'll just say it now though. Like even when they heard this, this about this injustice of slavery that was taking place, their response to slavery was. We have to let the slaves and their slave owners know about Jesus Christ. That was their response to the injustice in the world was Jesus. So here are some of their principles. The church only exists for extending Christ's kingdom and every member must be trained to take part in it and the personal experience of the love of Jesus is the power that fits us for service. It's not education. It's not how much scripture we know. Have you been saved by Jesus? Do you know it? Are you thankful for it? And do you want other people to know that truth? That's what qualifies you as a Moravian missionary. This is what we just talked about. Um, So here are some of the distinctives that you guys named, right? The the scripture, Isaiah 53, as being what's central. The 24-7 prayer. The reason I put with grace on there is because they weren't legalistic about this that if people didn't have the discipline to pray for an hour, what they said is, well, just sing songs to God. Get out your hymnal. Read scripture out loud. Like, don't, don't feel um, guilty for not being able to pray for an hour. Okay? So they did, they did pray, and, they cried, and that was the power of the missionary movement was, was through their prayer and their petitions, but they weren't legalistic about it. This was another unique thing. Submitting and exhorting one another in love regardless of their leadership position, which led to confession of sin and receiving of God's grace. That the pastors of the church were not, ju- were not the only ones who served as watchmen over the spiritual condition of the church. But the pastor said, if you see something in me, call me out on it. If you see sin in me, that I want you as, as one of the parishioners to make it known to me so that I might confess it. That's humble leadership. That's smart because all of us are affected by sin and all of us go astray. And then, again, introducing people to Jesus as a response to injustice and kingdom expansion. See, I think I've got, what, five minutes left? Okay. Uh, We're going to try to... Luke chapter 14 um, talks about barriers to the kingdom of God. And in that story, um, a nobleman says, I'm going to have a party, and I want people to come to my party. And so an invitation goes out, and the first person says, I can't come to your party uh, because I have to take care of my oxen. And then the second person says, I can't come to your party because I've just bought a field and I have to go check on it. And the third person says, I can't come to your party because I just got married. None of these in and of themselves are bad things. Right? But the stumbling block that prevents people from experiencing and interacting in God's kingdom are our occupations, our lifestyles, and our family. And so Jesus in the next part of 
of Luke 14 says what? Well, how do you resp- how do you respond to that? How, do, how can your family possibly keep you from pursuing God's agenda in your life? Well, there's a girl in our church who wanted to go to Somalia, and her mom said, you can't go to Somalia, it's not safe. And she, and she said, God's calling you to go to Somalia. And so her mom went and talked to the pastor of her church and said, would we ever take a mission trip to Somalia? And the pastor said, no, it's not safe. So she said, see, the church doesn't do that. Our families, those who love us the most, can be a stumbling block to God's mission. There's another couple that we knew very early on when Kim and I were moving into the neighborhood. Parents, uh, they also were, uh, they moved in a couple months actually before us and their parents said um, they threatened to, to take their children away from them. They said what you're doing is abusive towards your children, is endangering their lives and they threatened to get a court order to remove the children from the home and to take over as their legal guardian. Because in their opinion, they were drawing lines on where sacrifices could be made and where they shouldn't be made. Right? They were committing the sin of Cain. Families can be a huge stumbling block. Our occupations, all of us are going into, like most of us are going into healthcare as a way to serve the Lord. And if we're not careful, it will occupy all of our time and all of our energy and all of our resources and prevent us from introducing people to Jesus Christ, which is the mission of the church. It doesn't have to be. It can be a great blessing. But it also can be a huge hindrance. So how do we prevent these things from happening? Um, First is uh, John 15 talks about if we're to bear fruit, that we have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So over and over and over again, again, this is the stuff that Val was talking about earlier today, is that this is a, has to be of primary importance to us. It's to foster a relationship with Jesus Christ at all costs, that we cannot bear fruit apart from Him. The second thing is to renounce the world. Jesus says, again, the second half, uh, basically, my summary is, hate your mama. It says uh, that anyone who loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. saying, hate your mama. Renounce even your mama. If she stands in the way of being obedient to, to being in a relationship with me and calling others and to have a relationship with me. To renounce the things of this world. I'm going to go back to Val one more time. For Val, that meant for a period of time uh, giving up his pursuit of medicine. Because for a time it became a stumbling block to him. Jesus has to be of all importance. Live by faith and not by fear. I've got a whole other talk that takes another hour just on that one and it is better than this talk. Okay? <laughs> But there was, a, there was a woman that Kim and I um, met who uh, she was felt a call upon her life to, to, again, to move into the inner city and to minister among the poor. She was a single mom with two kids, and she couldn't justify, she couldn't rectify in her mind that putting, and she felt like she was putting her children in danger by doing that. And she, she was afraid. And there's this beautiful passage in Numbers chapter 13 about... God calling families, families of Israel, and sending them as families to the Canaanites. And the men, when they go into the land to spy it out, they say, this is a land full of giants. And if we go in there, they're going to kill us, and they're going to take our women and children as plunder. So for the sake of our families, let's disobey God and go back to Egypt. God calls families to do crazy things. And God knows what's in the best interest of our children. God wanted the men of Israel to exemplify for their families what does it look like to live by faith and not by fear? What does it look like to be completely surrendered to our Heavenly Father? And to the world it may look like we're sacrificing the lives of our children for our values and our convictions, but for God, that's what He wants. 
is for us to live as a family in submission to Him. And so sometimes that means Daddy makes sacrifices and sometimes that means the children make sacrifices. For His glory and for His honor. And as a father, my, my central role is to help my children learn how to live by faith and not by fear. And then the last thing, we're going to close in this, is obedience-based discipleship. I'm going to close with a song. Okay? It's a very famous song. Okay? Sing it with me. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise Sing it with me, please. His house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. And the house on the rock stood firm. Right, there it goes again. Sand, splat. Right? Okay, what's that song about? Building our house upon the rock. And how do we do that? Here's, it's, a, it's a trick question. Usually we talk about like building a house in Jesus. What does that mean? When Jesus tells the story, the first part of the story is whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who builds his house upon the rock. Obedience to God's word is what he wants. And that's what gives our life sustenance and meaning. And it's what helps the world to see Jesus in us. And so we can't trade faith and obedience around like they're not related to one another. Just say, just put your faith in Jesus, put your faith in Jesus without obeying His Word. That God wants us to obey His Word. And so if we're going to live according to God's calling in our life, then we've got to obey Him. And so we've got to put these things into practice. And so when the Scriptures say things like, whoever has two coats and uh, give one of them away, we should do that. We should go through our stuff and we should give a bunch of it away and just see what happens. See what God has. It. When, when God says, give to whoever asks of you, like, don't get too caught up on, like, am I, am I uh, enabling somebody in their weakness? Or not? Like, just give to them and see what happens. See what God has to teach you through that. Take God at His word. Live according. And what will happen is that God's word will start to open up to you in ways that it never has when you just stood in front of your Bible with a pen and paper and tried to figure out the meaning on its own. Like, if you want to really know and understand God's Word and God's calling for your life, do what His Word says. No matter what the cost, what the risk, and you will start, your, your relationship with Jesus will grow deep. You'll begin to understand God in ways you never have before. You'll begin to also start questioning a lot of things that you've heard in the church. You'll become a prophetic voice for those around you, and you'll lose a lot of friends. <laughs> but it will be worth it, because you'll grow closer to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, I pray that you would clarify for us your calling upon our lives. And Lord, that you would draw us deep into relationship with you and that you would help us to see that first and foremost above all things, Lord, to give us a deep appreciation for your sacrifice that you made for us to die for our sins, Lord. And Lord, I pray that we would live out of the love that we have for you, that we would share the gospel not out of a sense of duty, but out of the love that we have for you and that we would long for others to know you in the way that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.